Hey, this is Maggie. And Ashley. And you're listening to The Watering Hole, a place where animals and animal enthusiasts regularly drink. Every episode, we'll talk about different animals and why they're cool, from basic biology to the threats they face and what people are doing about it, all while under the influence. Glug, 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 glug. Our favorite way to talk about animals. Yes, 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 yes. So we're on episode 10. So this is the end of season one. End of season one. Which is a little sad. Fingers crossed you're still listening. Yeah, I hope we're, I hope you're Hi, still Mom. with us. <laughs> yeah, the only people still listening. Hi, Mom. Mom and Dad. And Dad, who Mom forced you to listen to when she know. figured out how That's to That's exactly podcasts. it. That's like, Dad, my, Dad is listening only because Mom has it on in the background. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Okay. But we're glad that you are here. We're glad you're here. Thanks for sticking with us for season one. If you've got ideas or animal requests or things that need to change, we're all ears. We want to know. Because this is our first season and... It's also our first podcast. It's also our first podcast. (laughs) So we want to make this work. We want it to be enjoyable. And you know what? We've also done this on zero budget. So if you want to pay for our wine... Yeah. We'll figure out some way to Or maybe a microphone... Or some audio equipment, anything. Maybe an audio room rather than doing this in my apartment where the dogs are barking. Maybe you thought, hey, Ashley's really loud and Maggie's really soft. Can we fix that? (laughs) Can we please fix that? I'm sitting so close to the microphone right now and Ashley is not. And which is just funny because usually I can project, but I'm indoors, so I'm not. Yeah, I don't know why I'm so loud. I've never, I haven't, I mean, I guess I know. I guess I know. It's what happens when you're the youngest child. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. I need to be heard. So we've got two animals and our mermaid's purse to round out the season. Mm -hmm. Who goes first? I believe it's you because we're on an even number. All right. So. I have no idea what you have. My animal this episode is the. the, It's not. Okay. Did you look? I did look. (gasps) I know what you're doing. I'm sorry. Well, so I logged on to Google Docs, and I was like, what the fuck is this document? What? Did you I, like how I named it? I literally opened up your document, and I was like, I have no idea what this is. Oh. It's a good one. That's kind of how it went. Just wait. So, my animal is the Limosa Laponica. Laponica. Limosa Laponica. Limosa? Is it a llama? No. Oh. Can, uh, wait, can I guess? Uh-huh. Can you give me, a, like, a class, though? It's of the avian family. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> so, because <laughs> by the time that this episode will be airing, it's going to be the end of 2018. We mm-hmm. are rounding out the year of the bird. <gasps> so I did choose to do another bird. Oh, that was smart. Um, That's not what I did. So um, if you haven't noticed or you haven't heard already in one of our episodes, 2018 is the year of the bird because it's been 100 years since the Migratory Bird Act passed here in the U.S., which has gone great lengths to protecting a lot of the birds that we have here in North America. So the Lamosa Lapanica or Lapanica is the bar-tailed godwit. And this bird is so fucking cool. I can't even... I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Now, I've heard of a godwit, but so is this one, like, 
particularly special? Yes. Or just like God? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. This is a particularly I'm special Godwit. Oh my gosh. So Maggie's um, like shrieking. She's I'm so, so I'm like I'm I, all innocence has just come out of me because I'm just so genuinely excited about this. So this bird is in the family of sandpipers. Like you've probably oh. seen these oh, along yeah, the beach. Mm-hmm. You know, they're usually scurrying along the shorelines. They have long, skinny legs, but they're not that tall. This particular bird is up to 41 centimeters. That's just over one foot. Oh, that's so they're cool. they are pretty tiny. Is that like mostly leg though? Mm-mm, it's like half and half. All right, all right. Um, I'd but, say that's mostly leg. <laughs> I'm not half and half. Yeah. <laughs> but they do. That'd be yeah, weird. they've got long, uh, long skinny legs that are made for walking along the beaches and and mud flats. So these are shore birds. They are not seabirds. Mm-hmm. You know, seabirds are think of your your albatrosses, terns, um, petrels, and seagulls. Different gulls, not just seagulls. Sorry, gulls. Seagulls are technically not a thing. I know. Sorry. Well, I'm thinking of sea... I understand. Things that, like, the lay audience will understand. Yes. So anyway, uh, these are shorebirds. They are not meant for being out on the open ocean. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Gotcha. Yeah, because, like, when you think of, like, albatrosses and stuff, they're much larger, bigger wings. Huge wingspan. Shorter legs, whereas Mm -hmm. shorebirds tend to have those longer legs. They're usually smaller. Little little plump, and they're small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very round, I feel like. Round. Mm -hmm. That's a good observation. (gasps) So, these birds specifically, the bar-tailed godwits, are found in northern North America, specifically way in the far reaches of northern Alaska. Oh, wow. Uh, Along the shorelines and mudflats there. They are, quote-unquote, cinnamon-colored, even though I would have called them, like, brown. (laughs) But, um... I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but, like, when you're birding, there are so many times that we would just put, like, if we were recording what we were seeing in school, we just put LBB. Little Little brown bird. Yeah, little brown bird. Little black bird. Little brown bird. They're all, especially females, all look the same. Oh, my gosh. They're all brown. Yes. But they're... But some are, but they're all, that doesn't mean they're less cool. Yeah. Hey, fun fact to all those listening and to you, Ashley. Uh-huh. Um, so I just moved to this new apartment like a month and a half ago. Last week, I put out some bird feeders. Uh-huh. And in less than one week, I've had 10 different species of birds. <gasps> That's awesome. Isn't that fun? Today you had a woodpecker, right? Today I had a red-bellied woodpecker. Oh, so cool. So cool. Anyway. Okay, so back to the godwits, the bar-tailed godwits. Um, they nest on rolling hills of the tundra, and they feed through coastal lagoons and along the coast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, further describing them, they have long beaks that allow them to poke into the mud or shallow water. Females' beaks are longer. Yes, ladies. Uh, so that they can probe deeper to get at those insects, mollusks, and crustaceans, which Ooh. I think is cool and important because, they, you know, you got to feed the female if she's hatching, the, raising those eggs. If, and let's be real. Laying those she's eggs. She's doing most of the work. She's doing the work. Anyway. They'll occasionally eat seeds and berries. It just depends on what's available. Yeah. The females will typically lay four eggs. Both male and female will incubate, and the eggs hatch in about three weeks. Once they've hatched, the young are actually led to nearby marshes to go find their own food. Isn't that oh, interesting? Yeah. Making them independent. You're making them it's like independent. like the first time my mom took me to the grocery store. Oh. Did you ever go to the grocery store and have those little carts where it said customer and training? I don't know if I ever, if my mom ever put me in there. She probably oh. didn't trust me. Oh, I loved those. I will say I'm very annoying when I, to this day, when I go to the grocery store with my mom, I'm very good at making very loud footsteps. <laughs> Like, making it sound like I'm just stomping through the halls, but it doesn't look like I'm stomping. And it's one of my favorite things to do to mess with my mom. This is so weird. And, um, 
from ages two to eighteen, I was a terror. So oh, no. I was probably put on lockdown if we were to go into a store. They're together. like, we're not going to the grocery store with Ashley. A hundred percent. Hi, mom. Again, I know you're listening. I love you, mommies. <laughs> and I still do that. Oh my gosh. Just by yourself though this time. Just now, stop now it up and all that. I'm like, who's doing that? <laughs> it's fun. Um, let's see. Okay, so mating ritual for the bar-tailed godwits uh-huh. involves males putting on a display of aerial acrobatics and making loud calls. Oh, birds so, are the best. They're, they're, they really are. Okay, so that's all the basic biology about these birds. Okay, okay. Now, the reason that I wanted to choose these I was going to say, there's got to be a reason. <gasps> Not that that so wasn't cool, cool, but there's something. So, shout out to Scott Widensall of the Audubon Society. For if you hear background noise while we're recording this, it's just our dogs. They're crying because they're in a different room. Okay. They can hear us talking. Relax, puppies. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna just take Start two, your take two on that. So shout out to Scott Widensall for introducing me to these birds. The the bar-tailed godwit has one no has the most impressive migration of any migratory bird. Really? So they spend their summers in Alaska and some in Siberia, but mostly Alaska. And then they spend their winter down in Australia and New Zealand. Oh, shit. Now here's where it gets impressive. Okay. Before they migrate, they gorge themselves on food. They are <sighs> filling up on as much as they can. I want to be oh, a <laughs> Um. Now, I, I forget because I am, I'm telling this story on memory and on several glasses of wine. What? No. But, but I think they, like, can double in weight. So think about you and me doubling in weight because we are gorging <laughs> ourselves. And so me at Christmas time. And they, their uh, digestive organs compress and shrink. So they are carrying one of the, the heaviest fat loads of any migratory bird – and that is because they're about to embark on the longest non-stop migration across the Pacific from Alaska to New Zealand. And they do it all in seven to nine days. What? Yes. What? So they plump up with all of this fat because they're not going to be eating. And they're going to be essentially what you or I, if you or I were to go run for the next seven days. Leave now and I'll see you in a week. And you're running that entire time. So you I can run 20 minutes tops. You cannot stop. And so going back to that these guys are shorebirds. They can't land anywhere. So, I mean, they don't have the, the legs. They don't no. have the... the to like land on some like rocky outcrop or something like that. that not even happen. land on the water like an albatross could, Ooh. right? They don't have the feathers. They don't have the wings that could carry them off if they did land in the water. So they have to go nonstop this entire way. And scientists have used satellite tags clipped on them to track and measure the migration. And it's over uh, six to 7,000 miles. Like that's just insane, and they're that's just crazy. they're burning off all of this fat the entire way, so that when they get to New Zealand, they're back to normal size. Their organs have repositioned, and they're ready to just start it all over again. It's fucking insane. Birds are insane. Like also, also, you're flying over an ocean. How do you know where you're going? Right, day and night, day Let's and be night. Honest. I've been to Maggie's apartment a good number of times. I'd say. And I still had to ask her for the address, and I still almost took a wrong turn. Like, what? How? Birds and migration are Even just with the most road signs, amazing I can't get thing. places. Oh my god, they're just so cool. That's crazy. So yeah, this is this is like for us running 
an entire week without stopping. Humans well, that just sounds like hell. Yeah. <clears throat> so on the trek home, the Godwits again fill up with food, this time down in New Zealand, but they'll fly along the Asian coasts from like around the China's mm-hmm. China around the China around China's <laughs> you know, yellow the multiple sea. Chinas. <laughs> so they'll stop in the Yellow Sea and use that kind of as a pit stop and get some more food and then head back up to Alaska. Now, this is just some of the Godwits that they have tracked. Oh my gosh. And <sighs> if you guys can hear heavy breathing in the background, no, it's not <gasps> Ashley. It's my it's my dog. <laughs> Oh Anything else you'd like oh my to God, say? His nose is just like conveniently in your <laughs> armpit. Um, I thought it would deter him, and he was like, "No, this is comfy. This is nice." Okay, so getting back to the Yellow Sea, and then the birds using that as a pit stop. Yes. This is actually one of our problems with oh. the Godwits. They are listed as near threatened, oh. and a lot of uh, the nutrient-rich mudflats of the Yellow Sea, Yellow Sea, are disappearing, and that is because of. Everything human. That's, surprise! That's surprise. pollution, that's ocean acidification, that is just human encroachment and increased activity. So there's a lot, a lot that puts a that puts migratory birds at risk. So if you think this is as badass as I do, or you just think the fact that any of the birds in your backyard are annually migrating down to South America, and that's just impressive, because it is... I actually wanted to talk quickly about ways to help migratory birds. Yes, please do. As I've written here, ways to help migratory badasses. Yeah, well, I remember we talked about it in another episode with migratory birds, and a a lot of birds are migratory birds. Mm -hmm. It becomes an even bigger problem in terms of conservation because... It spans borders. Yeah, you can't... It's not just protecting one area. Yeah. Where did my dog go? (laughs) Behind the chair. Oh, okay. I was like... He's small, but he's not that small. I saw him disappear out of the corner of my eye. I was like, uh-oh. Just go sleepy, buddy. But yeah, so with migratory birds, their conservation is so much more complicated because it's not just protecting one area. It's they're traveling this entire room. I know. You have to so protect if, even more than just you your backyard. Like, I know. If one of those, those one, one spot, one stop along that route is screwed, then like the rest, it's like the weak, li- the weak link. Yeah. In a chain. And this happens This happens to so many birds. So a couple different ways that you can help migratory birds is put decals on your words. On your words? Mm. Put them on your words. All your words. Whenever you type anything, text anything, make sure you're putting those decals on. <laughs> oh my gosh. You, did you mean windows? I did mean windows. Put decals on your windows at work and at home. Birds are often flying into windows, as we know, because mm. either the windows are transparent and they think they can fly through them or they'll see another bird and they'll be like, ugh, get out of my way and they'll go after it. Actually, real quick, I did a short documentary that involved this woman I met through an organization that's, I think, through the Audubon Society called Lights Out. Um, (laughs) Where, where, what? I was going to mention that too. That's so great. Oh, dude, I didn't want that. No, you're probably going to have a better background of it than I am. Well, no, I just, originally I was going to do a documentary about this group, Lights Out, um, where I got to wake up at like 3 a.m. every morning and go with these volunteers who would do routes around where, again, we're located in D.C., and go around D.C. to find either birds that have struck windows that are either still alive or not alive. Yeah. So a lot of times it's finding dead, dead birds to kind of keep a, a tally to, to provide this information to people who do, who these building owners, to show them that, you know, it, it's a simple thing of turning your lights out where it yeah. doesn't distract migrating birds or birds flying through the night. 
Yeah, or, it, it disorients them. Yeah, there's a lot of times where you do find birds that are just, they're just stunned and you can bring them to a rehabilitation center. But so, yeah, so Lights Out is a really cool organization. I will say it was a lot of early mornings. Of course. Well, <laughs> But I, it's something you could volunteer your time with once a week or once a month or something like that. And they have them all over the place. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was the second thing that I was going to mention that you can do to help migratory birds is just turning your lights off at night or exactly, pulling your shades yeah. down. Mm-hmm. And that is because the light just confuses them because birds do migrate at night and they use the moon and the stars to help them migrate. And if they're not using the moon or stars because it's cloudy, they just have internal GPSs that work fucking phenomenally and it's we insane. still don't understand how it works. But anyway, so for example, actually the one of the largest lights out uh, chapters? chapters, I guess, uh-huh. is up up at the 9-11 memorial in New York City. And that's because the memorial has those two pillars of light and they often do disorient migrating birds. Mm -hmm. And so there are teams from the Audubon Society there that monitor the activity. And if too many birds start circling the light because they're confused, they turn out the memorial for 20 to 30 minutes to help the birds get on their way. That is awesome. It's like the 9-11 memorial is... Is like doing its part to willing like recognize. To, to recognize and and turn off to help migratory birds. I just think that's so huge because that's crazy. Like this is a national, beautiful, incredible memorial. If you haven't gone, I recommend visiting. Yeah. But you know they care about the migration migrating birds. I I just think that's phenomenal. Well, but anyway. I think it's very important to show that something so important and and incredible and again important is is still realizing that it can be a, a disorienting thing yeah for yeah it's something that you need to be able, like if you're going to keep your lights on like there needs to be someone monitoring yeah that. like um, that's pretty cool for new york city to yeah. give a damn come on world you guys got to pick up the pace yeah but anyway. so yeah keep turning your lights off at night yeah and especially in those very very tall skyscraper yeah. buildings can be incredibly important to a bird also, reminder that if you hear something in the background, our dogs are playing, everyone is fine. Oh, God. Okay, lastly, as we um, finish this up, uh, another way that you can help birds... Finish this up. Remember, I still have to go. I meant finish up mine. Oh, okay. Because I'm, I'm finishing up my segment. Gotcha. Go. Another thing to, to finish up talking about the bar-tailed godwit and other migrating birds, you can actually just go easy on your yard work. This oh. is an excuse for you to go be lazy. Leave the leaves. Leave the wildflowers. Uh-huh. Make a pile of fallen twigs and branches. You don't need to, like, remove them, dispose of them anyway. And avoid using chemicals to fertilize the lawn. That's because anything that's natural is actually going to be so much better for mm-hmm. the birds. Birds love underbrush to hide in. And oh. when you have shrubbery and you, like, trim it or clean it out so that you can see your backyard don't do that they actually love hiding they love hiding places and stuff birds will use anything that's there so be lazy do less yard work yard do less yard work less lard work if that's all you want you want to be a lard lard person i don't uh lard there's a joke somewhere there's a joke in there and i'm just not in a place to give it to you no well that's awesome so that is your that is your bar-tailed godwit and <laughs> and migrating birds. So happy year of the bird, everybody! Yes. If you have Can we clink? Yeah. Well, pretty good clink. Okay, this is the first time we've had actual glasses, so that's awesome. This is true. This is this is an upgraded episode. Oh my gosh. All right. Okay. So I know 
you already know what my animal is, but that doesn't make me any less excited because as this happens, it seems to happen with every single animal I choose. The more I read, I was like, this is so cool. This is so cool. This is cooler than I thought it was going to be. So my animal is the axolotl, which you may or may not have heard of, but there's a good chance if you've been to any aquarium or zoo that you have seen these guys yes. because they're frequently bred in captivity. And they're also just like a really cool creature and they're very unique. So the axolotl, or as its scientific name is, the ambio ambistoma mexicanum. And the only part of that name that I understand is the mexicanum part because they are originally from Mexico. So axolotls, that is their... Their common name mm -hmm. is, um, are kind of salamander, but they're really unique because they are pretty much for almost forever aquatic. So these guys are also known as the Mexican walking fish. Uh, they're an amphibian. So our amphibians are our frogs, our salamanders, our newts, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. They type. They tend to breathe through their skin, those guys. Um, so they're amphibian related to the tiger salamander, and they're found in Mexico. So what do these guys look like? So... Again, they kind of All I can look, think of is like a big smile. Yeah. They're very charismatic, especially for a salamander. Yeah. So again, they're kind of salamander. These guys have a really like large flat head and small beady eyes. They're not very big. So a sexually mature adult um, axolotl will range in lengths from 15 to 47 centimeters. So that's 6 to 18 inches. So not that big. Yeah. So they're not huge. Um, Question? In case somebody is wondering... And they want to go look this up. While Spelling? Yeah, how do you spell it? So it's A-X-O-L-O-T-L. And mm. I will say that the way I named my Google Doc was Axolotl, which is a Spongebob <laughs> reference. But I thought was hilarious and still do. So, uh, like I said, their length, 15 to 45 centimeters, 6 to 18 inches, although a size close to 9 inches or 23 centimeters is probably the most common. Okay. And greater than 30 centimeters or 12 inches is rare. So these guys relatively small. pretty small. Um, and we'll kind of get to that in a little bit. Uh, so the way I describe them is kind of like a fat, flat cylinder with stick legs. They're actually described as underdeveloped. <laughs> so their legs are like kind of not useful. Aww. Like I mean they are but um, they're very small, very skinny, and they have very beady eyes that do not have lids. Ooh. Right? Lidless. That's creepy. Do you, did I ever tell you about my eye, my eyelids? You may have. <laughs> so I tell people this a lot. Like I want to, oh my, do you tell us so, on dates? Probably. Oh god. That's why I don't have dates. Um, so fun fact about me is that I am what is called an incomplete blinker. That's right. I did know this. Yeah. So when I blink naturally, my eyes don't close all the way. And most of the time it's fine. But when I got contacts, it became a problem because I needed to have artificial tears on hand at all time because they dried up really fast. Basically, unless I'm consciously thinking about it, my eyes don't close all the way, which is why there are so many creepy photos of me as a child sleeping with my eyes like partially open. That is really creepy. I feel like we may have mentioned this on an episode before. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's a shame. Who wants to date me now? I'll probably <laughs> look at you. I'll look at you while I'm sleeping. So, me, as an axolotl, um... <laughs> So, again, these guys are, are kind of weird looking. Think of a, a fat, round salamander with tiny stick legs. 
so these guys, though, they do have three pairs of external gills. So a pair, so there's three on each side. Oh, yeah. And they're very, very frilly. Uh, so they're ex- external gill stalks. Oh, are called so that's rami. what their gills are. Yeah. Because I'm imagining what they look like, and it looks like they just have these things coming out of their heads. Yeah. Those are their gills. This looks like they got, like, some boas flowing around or yeah, something or like, like a that. mane type thing. So this we'll kind of get into later, um, so I'm going to save that. But there is a reason why they have external gills, and there, there are some other younger versions of animals that you see with external gills. Um, but younger versions of animals meaning you're meaning they're newer in the evolutionary chain yeah like baby versions oh you mean just young young babies okay. yeah they're not they haven't re- reached sexual maturity yet. got it i was um, hoping i was right sorry <laughs> but they're also they're very frilly because having those frills and those extra kind of parts increase the surface area and since gills are used to move oxygenated water through or for their version their version of respiration it helps increase that no. So that's why they're so, yeah. so fuzzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're increasing that surface area. It's all about the surface area. So axolotls have four pigmentation genes, which when mutated, they create different color variants. So these guys are pretty common in captivity, and a lot of times you see the white or pink version of yeah, them. Yeah. And I'd say that's probably the most famous version of them, mm-hmm. the ones that are typically shown in zoos. So the normal wild type of this animal is kind of a brown tan with gold speckles and an olive undertone. So it's pretty normal. However, there are four mutant types. One is leucistic. So that's a pale pink with black eyes. Albino, golden with gold eyes. Whoa. Whoa. Axanthic, which is gray with black eyes. And melanoid, which is all black with no gold speckling or olive olive tone. Hmm. So I would say the leucistic or albino is probably one that you see very often, which is kind of this pink, this whitish gold. And then depending on the color of the eyes, you'll know if it's leucistic or albino. Cool. All right. So in terms of their diet, or as I put it in my notes, yum, yum, yum. They are carnivorous, so they consume small prey such as worms, insects, and small fish in the wild. And they locate food by smell and will snap at their potential meat. And then they suck it up into their stomachs with a vacuum force. So these guys um, are suction feeders for the most part. They're very much like, they have small vestigial teeth, but that's not really how they're getting their, their prey. And these guys actually do live a relatively long term, I feel like, compared to what you think of, like, an amphibian, is they live 10 to 15 years. That is a long lifespan. Right? So they're, they're around for a good amount of time. So their habitat is kind of what makes them the most unique in kind of how they evolved to be who they are. Yeah. <laughs> they created who we are today. <laughs> so they are native to two lakes in the Valley of Mexico. So I'm going to completely butcher these names, but bear with me. Okay. One is Zotero. Xochimiloco? Xochimiloco? I can guarantee that the way we're pronouncing them is not going to be anything the way they're pronounced. Okay, I'm going to spell it. Because it's probably either Aztec or Mayan. Yes. So the way you spell it is X-O-C-H-I-M-I-L-C-O, and then also Lake Chalco, which is C-H-A-L-C-O. I feel more confident on that. That one's a little easier, maybe. Maybe. Um, So important things to know is that Lake Chalco no longer exists. Again, this is where they were kind of originated. So it no longer exists. Um, It was artificially drained to avoid periodic flooding that happened to the city of Mexico. And then Lake Chalco... Lake X. Like like X. It's probably Z, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm-hmm. Is it Chimalco? It'd be really important if I knew Spanish right now. 
Oh, probably help. So that one remains a remnant of its former self, so it's not nearly as boisterous as it was, and it exists mainly as a canal system rather than an actual lake. However, what makes these kind of the bodies of water that are preferred is a high altitude body of water surrounded by a risky terrestrial environment. Um, and because of this environment, it is fit, favored by neonatal species. Do you know what neonatal means? Um, I know that that's a place in the hospital. Yeah, so neonatal, neonatal unit is basically pre. where preemie babies mm-hmm. are, are, yeah. are located. So neonatal basically means that they have, these guys have reached sexual maturity without undergoing metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. So these guys retain their larval features throughout its entire adult life. So basically, they never look like adults, but they can. In general, they tend to always look kind of like they haven't fully been baked, is a way to put it. Which means they reach sexual... Sexual. Sexual. They reach sexual maturity without undergoing metamorphosis. Oh, wow. So if you think of like... A tadpole goes from a tadpole to a frog. They basically stay, like, in this tadpole stage for their entire life. So they retain the larval features throughout its entire adult life. However, there are cases where they do go through this metamorphosis. All right. So in the axolotl, this metamorphic failure, you could call it, is caused by a lack of the thyroid-stimulating hormone. So thyroid-stimulating hormone is what helps an animal go through yeah, metamorphosis. So they don't have this. And this actually is an, a survival mechanism. So aquatic environments in mountains and hills have very little food, and they also have very little iodine, which is important in the fa- in going through metamorphos- metamorphosis. When you're in a larval stage, you require mu- much less food than as in an adult stage. Yeah, yeah. Think of humans. A baby doesn't require nearly as much food as I do. Just saying, babies. Oh my gosh, as I continue to eat pretzels. Right? So salamanders in general can reproduce and survive in the form of their smaller larval stage, which is aquatic, mm-hmm. and requires a lot, a lower quality and quantity of food. But and as a big adult, which is terrestrial, they're going to require a lot more food. Right. If this animal that tends to live in an environment that's mostly water, and the, again, the terrestrial, terre- the land around it is very treacherous, they're going to want to stay aquatic, so they're going to want to stay larval, and they're going to not have as much food, so it's going to be advantageous. Um, Go ahead. I'm going to just interrupt you for a second. Go because ahead. Because our, do. our dogs were a really big distraction for me a couple minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember what you said about those lakes whatsoever. Okay, so the lakes are very high in alt- altitude. They're high in altitude, but aren't they also both gone? No, so one's no longer exists. It was drained because of flooding. And the other one is basically canals. But this is, again, this is where they originated. So I'm assuming so they do that live elsewhere. They live elsewhere around uh, the area. Okay. But, okay. but it tends to be these high-altitude lakes. We're getting high-altitude body of water surrounded by a risky terrestrial environment. Got so it. it's more advantageous to live in the water. Got it. Okay. So being neonatal or retaining these characteristics of a larval stage being like a baby all the time, um, is advantageous. So most adult axolotls look this way. However, if they do get enough iodine they need for metamorphosis and enough food, 
they can go through metamorphosis. It's possible for them, to do, for them to do that. And then they transform into terrestrial adults. So you can find axolotls that look like regular salamanders. Sure. And not like these overgrown baby Babies, salamanders, yeah. essentially. Wow. Um, so one way that they get iodine is through cannibalism. So they can just eat other 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 buds. Glancing over that, uh, when they do get into terrestrial, when they do transform into terrestrial adults, which again isn't extremely common in the wild, they'll resemble the plateau tiger salamander. Interesting. Yeah. So it is possible, but most of the time you see an ad- a wild adult axolotl, they're going to look this with these like beady eyes. Is that what body, we're seeing in the zoos and aquariums? Legs. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And again, aquatic is also the big, the big kind of distinguisher in whether or not they've gone through metamorphosis as an adult. Huh. If they're living in the water, they're going to be that neonatal yeah. stage. Yeah. If they're on the land, they've gone through metamorphosis. How peculiar for an animal, right? Huh. I know. I didn't know. Like, I knew that they were like these kind of weirdos who know. They were like the Peter Pan of salamanders. Yeah, I was just going to say. I was. Up. I would assume that these were fully grown, but nope, they're just big kids. I mean, but they are fully grown, just right, still right. looking like right, a kid. Right, yeah. So I knew going into this how cool axolotls were and the fact that they retained these characteristics. But then I learned more and more. Mm. So for one, they're commonly used as a research model. Mm. And this is because they're very easy to breed in captivity compared to other salamanders. Because, again, they stay in this neonatal stage, so they're aquatic, because it takes less energy to survive. So it's also going to keep less... It's less work for people to do to keep them in captivity compared to a salamander with a terrestrial life. Right. Um, another thing is that they have a very large and easily manipulated embryo. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I mean... It I means mean, like Jurassic Park, Ashley. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, so it's easy to see things that are going on while this vertebrate is developing. Um, so it makes them an easy research model. So one thing that they're often used for is heart defect studies. Whoa. Heart defect studies. I don't... I said it weird. Um, heart defect. Yeah. So they're used in heart defect studies because of the presence of a mutant gene that causes heart failure in embryos. And because of, like, the, the stage it develops, it's very easy to see it, like, physically see it, which is really important in research. Uh, so they are the ideal animal model for the study of the neural tube closure due to the similarities between human and axolotl neural plate and tube formation. So, like, the neural tube is, like, the beginning of the spinal cord. Yeah, Argos, I agree. It's very interesting. Um, but, yeah, so they're a really good research model. They're easy to breed. So, yeah. like, the two and two kind of go hand in hand. I now, wonder, hmm. no, what do you wonder? I was going to say, like, how we first discovered them if they were in such a limited... Yeah. Area. And we're like, hey, look at all these cool things these can do. I don't know. I can't answer that question for Mm. you. But this is the coolest part. Here we go. They get cooler. So these guys are basically magic. They have the most incredible healing power, power, as far as I've read, of like pretty much any animal, any creature. Okay. So they're capable of regeneration of an entire lost appendage um, in a period of months. So if they like lose a leg, they can completely regenerate it, which is not unique specifically to axolotls. There are a lot of different amphibians and reptiles that can also regenerate. Sure. However, they've also been known to regenerate entire vital structures. So that's not just like a lost limb. Like they lose something inside or like something goes missing. How? How do they lose it? Magic. It's magic. How do they lose it though? That's what I don't understand. I don't, I don't, that's, that is a good question. I don't know if like they've like done 
I don't know how they got to this conclusion. Um, yeah, so I don't know how they would lose a vital structure. It could be, like, in research they found that, like, like you know, like, when something dies yeah. inside you. I feel like this is um, Iron Man 3. There, there you go. But they can, they can regenerate those structures as well. They have also found that they can restore the less vital parts of the brain. They can restore... Parts but of their why, brain. Why do they need to restore it? What happened? I don't know. Did they have a really bad concussion? Listen, you're focusing on the wrong part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying to think of some sunny joke of like, sunny joke? Of some funny joke, like, oh, they lost their minds, but if you're an axolotl, it's okay, you can just regenerate you can just it. get it back. Um, uh, there's a joke there. Somewhere. So if anyone can find it, let us know. But so they are really, they readily accept transplants from other individuals, including eyes and parts of the brain. So I'm guessing that these things were discovered through research and not just in the wild where, like, part of the brain went missing. Because that doesn't usually happen. Well, I was going to say, like, did somebody get their head bitten off? Yeah. And, and I wonder, so they, like, so one thing that's really cool is that they're known to repair a damaged limb, but in, in addition to that, that sometimes they as well, will regenerate an additional one. Whoa. Like, they almost put too much effort into it, and then, like, you lose a leg, you gain two. Ooh, so I wonder if maybe some, like, someone saw, some scientists saw that, and they're like, wow, yeah. these guys have an amazing regenerative power. What else can they regenerate? I feel like this is on the cusp of the next sci-fi movie. But for real. Like, where it's almost Spider-Man meets Jurassic World. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We'll make it. We'll create it. Listen. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Someone will. Just, but yeah, oh so these gosh. guys just have this amazing ability to regenerate body parts. And more than, like, the normal, a gecko loses its tail. Yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. They That's crazy. Tail. Also, fun fact, I don't know too much about this, but the 32 billion base pair long sequence of the axolotl's genome was published in 2018 and is the largest animal genome completed so far. It's also, pretty impressive and It's also random. larger than the human genome, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so I was thinking about this earlier today. Uh-huh. I was like, what makes me as a human so exceptional? Okay, I guess our brain. Like, that's what sets us apart. Yeah. It's our brain. There's a lot of things that make us really unexceptional, But like, But, like, it's just our opposable thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> Accurate. But, like, our brains aren't even that great because... We're not fixing all the world's problems. Yeah. We, we came up with them. We can, if you, we can solve them. If you think in terms of our bodies, we're really unexceptional. Oh, our bodies do nothing awful. exciting. Like, and a lot of people will be like, well, that's our strength, our brain. Well, okay, but anyway, okay, I'll well, let you finish up. Cause... Yeah, so the last thing I have is just a bit about their conservation. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I believe will come as no surprise based on their location, they are IUCN listed as critically endangered Yikes. and are listed currently as decreasing. Um, so some other problems other than the growth of Mexico City is non-native fish being um, introduced. So that's mm. the African tilapia and the Asian carp. Um, so these are bigger guys that can that are competitors for the longest time. They were kind of the top of you know of the food chain in these tiny little little habitats. Um, but with these non-native fish, so fish that are not naturally found in these areas, yeah. they all of a sudden have new competitors. There's a popular, they're popular again, like I said, in aquarium trade because of how how well they breed. And they're also a delicacy in Mexico, roasted axolotls, del- delicacy, which shrinks their numbers, but it's not, um, but it's believed now that all, at least captive populations, so those aquarium trade 
um, axolotls um, are all captive bred. They're not pulling axolotls from the wild to put them in, in tanks. That's good. There, however, because it's so small, there's really no population data. Like, I can't give you a, a specific yeah. number. But on the weird bright side, they do really well in captivity. We can breed them there. So hopefully there will be some kind of effort put forth, none that I found, to get these guys back in the wild because their habitat is decreasing, decreasing and they kind of require a very specific environment. But... You can see them in the aquarium. You can yeah. see them around. But yeah, so kind of a bummer that these guys are, are diminishing in the wild, but they are going to be around in some capacity, I think, for a while. Oh, conservation. Yeah. Mm. That's what happened. But again, this was a, 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 a species I went into, and I knew that they were these neonate kind of species that look, retain these, yeah. these abilities, but I didn't know how much they were used for research. They were used so much more for research than what I even just gave you. I didn't know that they were basically these magic healers that could grow extra limbs. Yeah, that's incredible. For such just like a small amphibian. So cool. For sure. So cute. Always smiling. <laughs> Always smiling. <laughs> yeah. All right. So next is our... Mermaids first. Yeah. Do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? Do you have it up? I do. Okay. <laughs> it is... Oh, the common land. Oh, is that, that's an antelope. It's an, yeah, it's of the... Uh, antelope family. Is it Bovidae? Antelopian. No. No? Common to land. Is it a Bovid? So they're like... Yeah, yeah, it's the family Bovidae. Oh! So this so is they're, related to cows. They're super cool. They're found in East and Southern Africa. I feel like um, things in the antelope family are kind of like the forgotten mammals. Yeah. Because they are like pretty big and what you would think of as like... Probably a charismatic species, mm -hmm. but they get very little recognition. Yeah, they do, and they've got really cool horns. Ooh. It's a savanna and plains antelope found mm -hmm, in East mm -hmm. and Southern Africa. Um, Their horns are like if you think of a goat horn, and then someone twisted it. Yeah, yeah. And like not like a curve, like actually twisted it. They eat grasses and leaves, of course, because they are an herbivore. It uses loud barks visual and postural movements and the flamen response oh we've talked about that before communicate and warn others dragons. of danger uh, yeah so um that's when an animal curves back its lips by the way and they're kind of getting a sense of the environment by taking in the mo air molecules into their, I believe it's called the Jacobson's Jacobson's organ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and they are of least concern oh, with the IUCN. That's great. They're also, if you look at them, they kind of have like this big skin flap under their neck. So that is called something. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> wow. I think it's called like a dewlap and moose. It's called a dewlap and like lizards. I think. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same. Basically, extra flap of skin. Remember when I told you about my dog yesterday? It's a, a dewlap. My dog had double dewlaps. <laughs> so I, I had a dog that passed away about a year ago, well, a year and a half ago, and he was beautiful, but he had a ton of skin. He had a he ton had, of dewlap. He had a ton of dewlap, but it basically looked like he had testicles hanging under his neck. That's disgusting. I know, but we would call them his chesticles. <laughs> Because he just had too, so much skin, but I think double dewlap would have been more appropriate and less gross. He was super handsome, I swear. Bowie, I love you. But yeah, these guys, they also have that, that little hump on their back, mm -hmm. which you know what that's for? 
It protects their neck from predators. Um, I was going to say it either protects them from predators or it uh, maintains water. Like if you ever look... Retains water. If you ever look at, like a bison had them because there used to be a lot more predators. They have those like big humps right behind their neck. So if an animal, like if a, you know, a lion or a cheetah were to jump on top of them, because we used to have lions in America, like years, like that wasn't, that was a long time ago. They would... Not get to the neck because of this big old massive like fatty hump on the back of the neck. Why are you looking at me like that? Great. Yeah. So Elands, just another member of the Elan family. Just family. another member. Member. Oh my god. Another member of the antelope family, which is kind of a nice way to wrap it up because was the first thing you did the saga. Mm-hmm. It was. <gasps> We're just starting with antelopes. Ending with antelopes, we got them everywhere. This is an antelope podcast. All right, Maggie, take us out one last time. Just a reminder, though we are animal enthusiasts, we're not scientists, so please don't cite us in your academic papers or your own podcast. I mean, that would just be silly. Do your research. Get excited like we are. That's why we're here, guys. And we've been so thrilled to share this whole season with you, and we do hope that you are still listening. And like we said, um, send us some ideas and... Hopefully we'll feature your favorite mammal or bird or reptile or things. Oh, my God. There's so many. There's so many. So thanks for joining us this season. Tune in next season. Yes. When we learn about even more animals, uh, their biology, their habitat, the threats they face, and what people are doing about it because we've got the power, guys. We can do this. Yes. So. And if it makes it easier, drink some wine. <laughs>